Welcome back. This is Dr. Nate on the EM Stud Podcast, and in this episode, I want to digress a bit from our Is Emergency Medicine for Me and How Do I Get Into Residency topics that we've either covered or planned for you, and instead talk about a clinical issue both relevant and prevalent to emergency medicine, pain management. Pain management is such an important topic for us as emergency physicians because, after all, we don't want our patients to suffer. Someone with abdominal pain, chest pain, a bad fracture, treating these patients with pain medications is not just important, it is the right thing to do. But by analgesia, I do mean appropriate analgesia, both in the ED and at home because there are downsides, side effects, adverse events directly related to or as a result of the use of pain medications. Unfortunately, pain management is not generally something that is covered in great depth either in medical school or in residency, which is incredibly ironic when you think about it, given that pain medications are among the most commonly prescribed medications in the ED. So in this episode, we are going to talk pain, what it is, where it comes from, and what you should be doing to treat it effectively, safely, and in a manner consistent with best practices. Alright, if you have spent any time whatsoever in the emergency department, then you know that pain is an incredibly common complaint. The most common complaint. Up to 70% of patients have some sort of pain as a component for the reason for coming to the emergency department. In many, it is a sign that something is wrong, in others, a reflection of some sort of real or perceived psychosocial need. Either way, patients think pain is important, and their perception of how well they were cared for is influenced by the treatment of their pain. Next, if you're listening to this podcast, I'll assume that you're a human being and hopefully the sort of human being that doesn't want to see someone in pain. But why else is it important to us as the healthcare providers? Well, obviously relieving pain makes a patient feel better, makes us feel like we've accomplished something, and likely makes it easier for the patient to explain their problem or cooperate with examinations or tests that are necessary in their workup. But in addition to that, unrelieved pain is associated with negative physiologic states, such as increased sympathetic activity and peripheral vascular resistance, increased myocardial oxygen demand, and decreased immune function. Additionally, hospital systems think pain is important. In 1999, the Veterans Health Administration launched the Pain as the Fifth Vital Sign Initiative, requiring an intensity rating of 0 to 10 at all encounters. And in 2001, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, or JCO, followed suit, mandating that hospitals develop and employ systems to measure, document, and assure quality improvement of how pain is treated. Ultimately, whether or not such strict monitoring and documentation of pain scales truly influences outcomes is up for debate. But regardless, pain is important to the patients, the providers, and the hospitals. So let's define pain. Pain is an unpleasant sensory and or emotional experience arising from either actual or potential tissue damage. That's important, right? Why do we care about chest pain? Because it could be a sign of ischemia. Why do we care about head pain? Because it may represent meningeal inflammation or elevated intracranial pressure. Why do we care about abdominal pain? Because perhaps it is a signal that the abdominal aortic aneurysm is about to burst. I could go on. But the point is that pain is a flag, so to speak, or a time out in the patient's normal physiologic state of being that signals, hey, wait a sec, there could be something bad going on here. 
In terms of pathophys, pain can be described in a number of dichotomous ways. Nociceptive pain is the result of some sort of noxious stimulus on a sensory neuron somewhere. The noxious stimulus is typically chemical, thermal, or mechanical in nature, and the activation threshold, or in other words, the amount of stimulus required to make that nociceptor fire off a signal to your brain, can be altered by a variety of chemical mediators, including, you guessed it, endorphins. On the flip side, neuropathic pain is more the result of some alteration in the signal processing at the CNS level and can cause that burning, tingling, parasthetic pain experienced with various neuropathies. Another way to categorize pain is in terms of the types of fibers associated with their transmission. The two main types are type A and type C. Type A fibers are fast, and the delta subgroup gives your patients that sharp sensation when you stab them in the arm with an IV catheter. In contrast, type C fibers are much slower and transmit that sort of dull, aching pain that tends to last longer than the initial stimulus, like when your patient's arm still hurts after your IV attempt was unsuccessful. Both A delta and C fibers ascend in the contralateral spinothalamic tract. Now, without even knowing it, you've probably already employed this information in the assessment of your patients. Take appendicitis, for example. You all know that early on, appendicitis classically presents with this dull, crampy, aching sensation that occurs, oh, I don't know, somewhere around my belly button is my best guess. That is likely because the type C fibers in the bowel are responding to visceral stretching and are sending their afferent signals through the celiac ganglia and the splanchnic nerves to the spinal cord at T10, the level of your umbilicus, giving you referred pain. As the appendicitis progresses and the inflammation extends to the parietal peritoneum, now the type A delta fibers are triggered to send that sharp sensation that is much better localized to the right lower quadrant. So in response to this nociceptive visceral and or somatic pain, the body is designed to do a bunch of stuff. Cortisol goes up. Catecholamines go up. Cardiac output, minute ventilation, metabolic rate, and peripheral vasoconstriction go up. GI and GU motility go down. And a nifty system called the neuroendocrine system starts releasing opioids, including endorphin, which act at mu1 and mu2 receptors. This is great because endorphins can decrease pain. But this is also bad because of the associated cardiorespiratory depression, GI slowing, urinary retention, and tendency for addiction and abuse. For millennia, humans have been taking advantage of these receptors in the treatment of pain as far back as the Sumerians in Mesopotamia around 3400 BC when the poppy plant was first cultivated. Fast forward a few thousand years, and in 1803, morphine was extracted from opium in Germany, and following, many other opioids have been synthesized. Okay, now that we've got all that boring stuff out of the way, let's move on to what you should know in managing your patients. As a matter of semantics, the term opiate refers to derivatives from opium poppy, including morphine and codeine. Opioid is a broader term which includes not only opiates but also synthetic compounds such as methadone and fentanyl. The term narcotic is a legal term that refers to opioids and a few other things with abuse potential. So does your patient have acute visceral or somatic pain? Are you concerned about a potential life-threatening process? Then by all means, treat your patient. 
Offering appropriate doses of opioids for moderate to severe pain is certainly reasonable while you work up your patients and treat their acute problems. But then, what about the patients who simply sprained an ankle or have dental pain because they refuse to see a dentist, or has chronic pain but wants dilaudid today? In order to understand where we are now, it's important to realize that beginning in the 20th century, the addictive and debilitating effects of opioid use began to be recognized. And for a while, the widespread perception among health professionals that predominated was that the long-term use of opioids for chronic pain was contraindicated by the risk of addiction as well as the lack of efficacy over time. But this began to change in the 1980s and 1990s. The use of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain increased, and with it came an increase in the available prescribing options including combination drugs like Vicodin, Vicoprofen, Ultraset, Percocet, Percodan, and single drug formulations like MS-Cotton, OxyContin, Dilaudid, and others. From 1999 to 2010, sales of opioid analgesics to hospitals, pharmacies, and practitioners quadrupled. The per-person morphine equivalents in the United States, according to drug sales and distribution data, increased from 180 milligrams per person in 1997 to 710 milligrams per person in 2010 the equivalent of supplying every American adult with 5 milligrams of hydrocodone every 4 hours for a month. Not surprisingly, the prevalence of non-medical use increased over this time period as well. Between 1990 and 2004, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health reported that the number of first-time abusers of prescription opioids increased from about 630,000 to 2.4 million. From 2000 to 2002, the number of ED visits involving prescription opioid abuse increased 45%, mainly from hydrocodone and oxycodone. In the November 2014 issue of Annals of Emergency Medicine is an article worth reading entitled, The Opioid Prescription Epidemic and the Role of Emergency Medicine. This article summarized even more sobering statistics regarding the dangers of opioid medications. The number of deaths from drug overdose has been increasing consecutively from 1999 to 2010, and in 2010, 60% of over 38,000 drug overdose deaths were caused by prescription drugs, 75% of which caused by opioids. Similarly, Heroin abuse and related deaths has increased, with almost 80% of new heroin users having previously used prescription pain medications for non-medical purposes. The management of acute versus chronic pain, tolerance versus dependence versus addiction is complicated, difficult to tease out, and requires a multidisciplinary approach, but they are all things we see in the ED on a daily basis. Unfortunately, this is further complicated by emergency providers often finding themselves tied to a system in which their pay is dependent on patient satisfaction and timely pain control rather than prevention of adverse events. And while opioids remain at the top of the list for effective medications for moderate to severe pain, overall consensus on their use remains a hard thing to nail down. Herein lies the critical dilemma we face as emergency physicians or future emergency physicians how to balance providing compassionate care 
while preventing opioid addiction and overdose. Also included in the Annals article are some great guidelines put together by ASAP chapters in Washington and Oregon, as well as a group in New York City. To summarize, we should avoid prescribing long-acting controlled substances, IV or IM opioids for acute exacerbations of chronic pain, prescribing opioids to patients currently taking controlled substances, and replacing prescriptions that were lost destroyed or stolen. Recommendations include screening for opioid and substance abuse, contacting the patient's primary pain management provider and prescribing only enough pills to last until the office of that provider opens or the patient is reasonably able to follow up, starting with the lowest dose and prescribing only a short course, no more than three days for example, and using the state prescription drug monitoring program. Here in Virginia, we are fortunate to have a state-run prescription monitoring program, a tool that allows us to look up a patient's history of controlled substance prescriptions. Unfortunately, these systems are not perfect, and information is not easily accessible from all states. Yet, they remain a promising tool in identifying high-risk patients and potentially reducing the number of opioid prescriptions. So in summary, pain is a big, big issue to tackle. It is the most common complaint in the ED, and when you enter residency, you will be faced with making decisions regarding acute pain management in the ED, as well as potentially prescribing opioid medications on a daily basis. While it is important that you treat your patients appropriately and compassionately, realize that the adverse events associated with opioids are very real, and the numbers we are seeing across the country of abuse and death from drug overdose are skyrocketing. Until we have better national consensus guidelines and more consistent prescription drug monitoring programs in place, it is up to you to stay vigilant. Screen your patients for substance abuse and try to identify those who may be at high risk for non-medical use. Get access to prescription drug monitoring programs in your area if you can and use it to aid in your medical decision making. Avoid using IV or IM opioids in the treatment of acute exacerbations of chronic pain. If you're going to prescribe opioid medications, write for a low dose and a short course only, or until the patient is reasonably able to follow up. Don't rewrite prescriptions for patients who have lost, destroyed, or had their prior opioid prescriptions stolen. And if your patient already has a primary pain management provider, get in touch so that everyone stays in the loop. All right, so that's all I have on pain management for now. Thanks for listening, and don't forget that if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Google+, or at www.emstud.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at emstudpodcast. We always appreciate any comments or questions you may have, so if you have any, let us know. This is Dr. Nate saying, don't be a dud. Be an EM stud.